0: Helping people build ambitious and satisfying careers, businesses, and lives. This is the Influence Ecology Podcast. Now here is your host, John Patterson.
1: Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I'm your host, John Patterson, the co-founder and CEO of Influence Ecology, the leading business education in transactional competence broadcasting from Ventura, California. This podcast features case studies, stories, and lessons from business owners, executives, and entrepreneurs who found real solutions, real results, and real satisfaction not only with work, career, and money, but in every area of life. You'll hear how these ambitious professionals found that those who transact powerfully thrive. In today's episode, Well here's some clips from our recent mid-year conference. As we teach it, there are four vital components to consider when constructing the environments or transactions that do some heavy lifting for us. These elements are ideas, narratives, objects, and standards. Some transactional behavior archetypes are better suited to provide one of these elements than others. The conference included over 40 subject matter experts who addressed how they amplify their influence in their transactions. Big ideas often have small beginnings. The role of the inventor personality is to provide the ideas, frameworks, optimism, and certainty required for any transaction to be successful. Today, we'll hear from some of the top inventor minds within our ecology, and we invite you to listen to this episode from two different angles. You either are an inventor or you're involved in exchanges with them. As you listen, what can you learn about yourself? What can you learn about transacting with others? Here are some inventor personality clips.
2: For those who don't know me, I'm Dr. Gary Ward. I'm a medical doctor. I live in the most isolated city in the world, Perth, Western Australia. But my role today, everyone, is to set the scene for the talks by the extraordinary people we have here at the conference representing the transactional personality we call the inventor. We're going to hear about the inventor's superpowers. We're going to hear about their ideas, their frameworks, their optimism and certainty. And I, tend, I intend everyone to leave you with a deep appreciation of the skill set of this personality. For those of you who identify as inventors, I want you to experience being acknowledged for your brilliance and value. For those who identify as performers, producers and judges, I want you to be left with the experience of how much you are needed by inventors, even if they sometimes don't always acknowledge your critical role in helping both them satisfy their aims and at the same time helping you satisfy your aims in life and in the history of mankind the really big ideas often seem to have started as small seeds of an idea in the very complex brains of the kind of person that we would influence ecology call the inventor leonardo da vinci observed birds and thought about the possibility of manned flight and designed flying machines over 300 years ago. Isaac Newton had the idea of gravity and transformed our understanding of the universe after observing an apple fall. And Einstein is said to have produced many thought experiments, just thinking through scenarios in his head. The paradigm shifting theory of relativity began with one of these thought experiments involving trains, Observers, clocks, and lightning. So, all big ideas have small beginnings, and I would offer this for you to consider. Some of the biggest ideas that impact our lives today began with inventors, utilizing the vast array of antecedent data and then projecting solutions way out into the future. Inventors invent, they not only have ideas. They have the neural networks that enable them to absorb all the available facts, the resources, the connections, the patterns of possible solutions to problems. And then they can see or they work out the frameworks required to overcome the obstacles to a desired future. Their worldview is everything is possible. Heavier than air flight, sure. Go to the moon in 10 years, sure. Have an influence ecology mid-year conference in the middle of a deadly worldwide pandemic, sure. Inventors have this uncanny ability to see consequences of possible pathways. They can construct the algorithms. If that action happens, then this will happen. If that cog moves, then the next cog will move. And they're able to construct the frameworks, the pathways, the architecture for how their big idea can be made real. And because they have that ability to build the architecture, the machinery, the frameworks in their brains, and have worked out in advance that it will work, They exude a sense of optimism. It just comes naturally to them to be optimistic because they know that future they thought of that others think is not possible, is possible. It's not wishful thinking for them. They know it is possible. We may not always believe them, but they are certain. My study of the literature on the neuroscience of creativity suggests to me that people with this brain structure have a biological thermostat for certainty. Their internal reward system is linked to predictability. Certainty is what makes an inventor happy. So they go to work thinking through the frameworks with that natural optimism that comes from their worldview that anything is possible to develop the certainty that their idea will work. Therefore, they can be trusted. Even if we are lost, confused, or unsure, if they say it will turn out, it's because their lizard brain is quiet. They have already worked out that their plan will work. The primary value or proficiency of the inventor, if you allow them, is vision and control. I would ask each of you to consider how many times have you been agitated just a little by that aspect of people with this personality? Well, I invite you to consider this context. Once their creative linkages have done their work and their reptilian thermostat will let them know if uncertainty is creeping into any transaction now i think an inventor will tell you things going off track is usually because some idiot is doing it wrong or some other critter in the environment is attempting to reinvent before it's time so if uncertainty is creeping into transactions or the smooth flow of sequences that the frameworks have determined is interrupted, they will detect it and alert you, hence the control. And they don't care that much for what you think or whether you are happy or not. They want to see their future unfold. And it is for the good of mankind, usually, in my experience. And since they sometimes seem not to care that much for others, or another way to say this is, their ideas are way more important to them than relationships, they will often ask or expect others to make sacrifices for the good of the future that they envisage. It's because of this certainty that the content of speech of inventors includes declarations. They bring their certainty to their discussions, to their narratives. They declare this will happen. As John F. Kennedy declared boldly, we will go to the moon in the next decade. As John D. Patterson declared two or three months ago this year, we will have our mid-year conference despite the pandemic. Who would have thought that was possible? I suggest and invite you to consider only an inventor personality has that grounded,
3: based in reality, self-confidence. Welcome to a presentation on Frameworks, Playbooks, and Pathways. My name's Alex Bold, and we're at the Influence Ecology Mid-Year Conference 2020. Um, I'm gonna start by making use of an analogy here as uh, a way of introducing how I think uh, this walk is likely to go. Um, it's a way of signaling how the content comes together as a set of intersecting ideas. So my hope is that by bearing with this analogy and bearing it in mind, it'll allow you to get the most value out of being in the, uh, in the presentation. So if we jump into the scene here, we can see a shoreline. Where the impact of the wave motion can be seen you can see some elements of the or impact of the waves there on the shoreline with the with the ripples as well we can see some reflections uh, you can see that there might be in fact the waves moving uh north south not just east west assuming east is where the sand is there there's some reflections you can probably even see the impact of the wind on the surface and then there are things that we can't quite see here, but are nevertheless impacting that there's the currents, the ocean currents, the swell, and further out, maybe some larger waves. And then finally, some of the things that can impact aren't quite so obvious. There's the movement of the moon, which produces the tides. And then there's the fact that we're right now in a period of time where the oceans are rising due to climate change. And then of course there's our vantage point. So my intent in sharing this is just to, to say that when we look at something, there's often a lot of factors that are happening in the immediate time frame, and also much longer running factors. Now we're gonna take a look at moving together at scale. So moving together at scale is to be increasingly purposeful. It has both a structural element and a human element. Increasingly fit for purpose. And there are other ways that things move at scale. So, as a recap, this idea that environments are, are distinct, that environments impinge, they constrain, they condition, and they demand the maintenance of fitness, that there's observable phenomena of moving, moving in a disordered way, moving with inertia, moving with the current, or drifting, or moving with intention. And adjunct to this observable phenomena of movement, there's moving together and there's moving together at scale. There's this interplay between moving and the environment and the way in which moving intentionally brings into focus some sense of purpose or aim against which measures of fitness and performance start to emerge. These measures, standards are specific to the intersection of the environment and the aim. And finally, that moving together brings into focus some sense of membership and whether the conditionality attached to membership, the relationship between participation and membership, notions of value, specialization and exchange, the evidence of cooperation and coordination. So this is the segue. With all this woven together into a, a background of sorts, we're ready to take a look at moving together at scale. And as we look, we can notice that there's a tendency for breakdowns in coordination and cooperation to increase as scale increases. And this is where frameworks and playbooks start to demonstrate their relevance as potential solutions to breakdowns in coordination and cooperation that arise as we move together at scale. All right. So now we we turn to this idea of frameworks for fitness and we, we break that up into two groups. Um, the first is working in the business and the next one is working on the business. And in, our, in the way we practice the installation of frameworks, we make extensive use of the fitness metaphor. So here's a frame, framework that was co-developed by Simon Chesney and myself. And I want a big shout out here to Sally Alata and her team at Agility Health for coming up with the design plan. What's unique about this model is the way it represents organizational performance as the intersection of demand and supply demand, in this case, by product management, supply by engineering, and that it takes place in an environment. So if we zoom in, we can see we have a scale here for fitness, that crawl, walk, run, fly, and we have some thresholds for fitness, the green and the orange for demand and supply showing walk. And we have the, the blue one there for the environment. Our thesis was this, that if we could raise the fitness of people in the environment to run, then they would be able to maintain the fitness of people in product, uh, in, in demand and supply at the level of walk without the requirement for external consultants. So, our game plan from the beginning was to figure out how myself and my team could exit uh, and work on other parts of the business. So there's a critical insight here, which is to understand that businesses are environments of consequence, and they're all ro- already operating with a set of frameworks, narratives, processes, and standards. And it's what produces the resilience and allows the scale. So step one in any transformation is to acknowledge the existing environment and then engage in the conversations necessary to allow for the introduction of a new environment, which may include dismantling the existing environment.
4: Frameworks are everywhere. They're so abundant that we've probably stopped recognizing that they're there. They can shape the way that we think, what we believe, or how we work. Computing frameworks, for example, help us develop applications or deliver the internet. Legal frameworks have created the doctrine of law all around the world. Cultural frameworks define traditions, religion, myths, and symbols. Organization frameworks structure our businesses or help us document how we operate. And influence ecology has created the transaction cycle. By definition, frameworks are basic structures representing an underlying system, concept, or text, and need to be applied to specific circumstances to be truly useful. However, they're often taken as complete and as such can create bias, which may undermine the very purpose for which they were imagined. Many of them were created decades ago. Business process modeling is the one that I'm going to pick on. I'm sure most of you will have some familiarity with it. It's the framework used by many organizations to model how they operate. It was created in the 1960s, became popular in the 1990s. version 2 of the specification was released in 2014. 2014 was the year of wireless electricity, the first 3D printers, and Apple Watch version 1. And so much has changed since then, but this framework has not. The way we work, the tools we use, the ease of access to information, and the ubiquitous use of the cloud has created the digital economy in which we now exist. And yet the frameworks which we believe we rely on to bring order to chaos have remained as they are for years. My name is Neil Calvert, and I am an inventor who lives in Wellington, New Zealand. I'm the chief executive officer and founder of Link, a cloud platform which models the digital twin of the organization, helping businesses understand the impact of change before they commit to implementing it in a risk-free way. My plan for world domination because every real inventor needs a plan for world domination is to impact the way the world thinks about plans for and implements organizational change by creating a new framework, which more closely models reality. I'd like to restate, I am an inventor. I should probably say inventor and proud and an underlying aim of my presentation is to give you some insight into how my brain works. And this may be a model for other inventors, but you will, of course, need to validate with uh, that with them. But I'd also like to share with you that we can learn to charm like the performer, we can work like a producer, and we can evaluate like a judge. And if you don't have an inventor on your team by the end of my presentation, I hope you re- you realize what you're missing out on and you're going to do the work to find one. So why does any of this matter? It's only a framework after all. of organizational change projects fail, and it's estimated that this failure costs between 50 and 75 billion dollars each year. And this is a statistic that we've been living with since the initial research was undertaken in 2013. And since then, nothing appears to have changed. If you go and evaluate businesses success stories for change today, the failure rate of 70% still seems to be one that people accept. Poor communication, insufficient leadership and support, organisational politics, lack of understanding of the purpose of change, lack of user buy-in and lack of collaboration are ranked as the most critical issues. These are all human problems, not technological ones, and yet technology tends to be the forefront of mind when we think about business change. We've been taught to think based on the use of frameworks and tools that organizations use to manage business change. I'll just repeat that, we've been taught to think this way. So project managers that are using enterprise resource planning, business analysts using business process modeling, business architects using enterprise architect, these are all learned tools and they can prevent us from thinking for ourselves. So this becomes a pathway challenge. You become confined to following a procedure that somebody else has created in order to build the knowledge that you need. And this means you no longer have to stick your head above the parapet to see if you're doing the right things or doing things right. You can end up just simply following instructions that were written for you. If that procedure and that playbook is outdated and hasn't adapted to changes in the environment, there is perhaps one reason for the high level of failure. It's my opinion, of course, and opinions are not fact but I would like to share some evidence with you and offer an alternate way of how I'm going about trying to reinvent uh, the way organizations think about this and ensure that they can deliver continued business success.
5: Big gaps need big ideas. But the moment we define a goal, we create a measurable gap between where we are today and where we see ourselves in the future. Inventors see lots of opportunities and have lots of big ideas, but are they good ideas? Have they done the accurate thinking required to test their validity? I'm going to share with you why I believe we need all four personalities, the inventor, the performer, the producer, And the judge involved in creating truly robust offers in the marketplace. In my late 20s, I left my big corporate role dealing with the Japanese market to start a footwear business. It was a big jump from working for a multinational food company to setting up my own business. Fired by my visit to Japan, I had seen an opportunity to create a beautiful range of leather house shoes. I did some market research, which proved there was a need, and set about addressing the gap in the market. My vision was to produce beautiful, elegant house shoes that women, and later the men too, would be proud to wear around the home and to export these around the world. I had visions of creating the equivalent success story of the J.P. Todd driving shoe that Princess Diana had worn. I had come from a large, disciplined, multinational company where I had been trained to do a number of roles and tasks, and I thought it couldn't be too hard to set up my own business. So I began by approaching my local cobbler and I asked him, how would I go about making a pair of shoes? He said, well, I don't know. I'll send you along to my supplier. So I went and visited the supplier and I asked the supplier, How would I go about making a pair of shoes? And he said, Well, I can't help you unless you actually have a design. So he sent me off to a designer. And the design, I asked the same question to the designer How would I go about making a pair of shoes? Can you help me? And he said, Well, I can't help you unless you have a mold, which is called a last in the shoe industry. And he said, I'll send you to a manufacturer. I visited the manufacturer and they gave me the mold, which I was then able to return to the designer to have a pattern made. And then back to the supplier to purchase the material and back to the manufacturer to produce my first samples. Six months after having had a conversation with the cobbler, I had my first set of samples. I visited potential retailers, took orders, placed the orders with the factory, produced our first one in time for Christmas, and sold out. This was the beginning of a journey which lasted eight years. As an inventor, founder of my own small business, I soon discovered there were big gaps in my knowledge and my competence. Whereas in a large company, I had had the support of many people to deliver our products to our customers. All of a sudden, I was on my own. I had also not considered that all the inputs into manufacturing my product needed to be imported, nor the high cost of labor nor that New Zealand was not recognized for its footwear manufacturing ability. Consider for a moment, when you do think of luxury handmade footwear, which country do you think of? Go on, raise your hand and let me know. Go on, Anna. Italy. <laughs> Perfect. Italy, quite funny, really. It's even in the shape of a boot. I had chosen to operate in an area that did not play to either New Zealand's comparative or competitive advantages. My original vision of producing a beautiful, elegant pair of house shoes made from New Zealand materials soon turned into an expensive product using imported kid leather from Scotland. When I was at university, I had said to myself that I didn't want to be one of those people with big ideas who never took action. So come hell or high water, I was determined to make a go of this. As an inventor personality, I loved the creative process, the designing, the marketing, and the selling. But I soon realized that the repetition and maintenance required for the more administrative aspects of the business were not my cup of tea. Having to order the raw materials, order the stock from the factory, manage the inventory, forecast demand and handle the logistics, including sending out all of the orders, not to mention dealing with all the accounts, was exhausting. While I had accumulated knowledge across all these disciplines and my corporate experience ensured that I was capable, they were not naturally the things that I aspired to do. I soon discovered I was naive and unfit for doing all the necessary tasks within the business. I was under-resourced, both in capital as well as people. However, as a young founder with a big idea and limited resources, guess what? I had to do everything. What seemed like a great idea soon turned into a lot of maintenance and a lot of work. Inventors are great at coming up with new ways to solve big problems. However, we don't necessarily enjoy those repetitive, detailed operational aspects of the business, which relate to ensuring the profitability of the business. So you might be asking, what do I mean by that? Well, I have come to realize that inventors and performance are focused on the revenue generation aspects of the business. What we recognize as the inventing, presenting, marketing, and sales functions within the transaction cycle, while producers and judges are focused on the profit generating aspects of the business, which include managing operations, record keeping, contracts, administration, specifications, regulations manufacturing logistics information systems accounts receivable legal the list goes on well over the years i had employed an assistant to help with the administrative aspects of the business i was still largely operating under resourced this is a problem i often see with businesses great ideas but under resourced founders who never reach their full potential because they do not understand the value of bringing on board the necessary transactional personality to think accurately about their ideas or the funding to support their expansion.
6: I was at a customer site in Washington state and it's a real pressure cooker of a project, uh, sitting in a mind numbing meeting, watching it pour rain outside. And I got a call from my wife, uh, Kristen. She had the fire marshal on the line. And he said, David, your house is gone or burned beyond repair. Now, kind of imagine my experience. We just lost every worldly possession except a few items that we had with us. Kristen grabbed a few things and dragged them out of the house before she evacuated. And that's what we had left. Now, I always said to Kristen, uh, you know what, baby, they're going to spread our ashes in this place, but unfortunately, I think the communication got a little confused. So my name, for those of you who don't know me is David Cottrell. Um, I am an inventor and an esteemed alumni, which means that I have completed mechanics and practice too. I began participating in 2012, the year of the fire. And I currently live in uh, Salida, Colorado in the Arkansas River Valley uh, with my wife, Kristen, and my three ill-behaved doggies. Um, today, I'm going to be talking about a seed of optimism. So you may be wondering what all this has to do with optimism since house burned down, right? Well, after we surveyed the damage and came to grips with the fact that we were effectively starting over, it occurred to me. And I said to Kristen... You know, we can respond to this in one of two ways. We can become victims to this and let it define us, and no one would really blame us, right? Or we can come out of this better in every possible way. Now, it doesn't mean I was happy or in a really good mood about it, um, because I wasn't. In that moment, I saw the future as a clear path. Now, I'm gonna be talking about what optimism is not, how I define optimism and how optimism can serve you. Optimism is not rainbows, unicorns, and magical thinking. It's also not copying an attitude of false positivity fueled by a naivete in the face of tough circumstances. It's not hope, it's not positive thinking. The current is full of that kind of stuff, like books like The Secret, um, Pedal This Narrative, Do what you love, the money will follow, that's another one, and I'm calling BS on all of that. I say optimism is the ability to see a pathway to the future and clearly communicate that future with certainty. Now, it's worth noting here that an inventor not only needs certainty, but produces certainty for others in their speaking. This is what we're taught here at Influence Ecology. This type of approach requires evaluating your resources, making at least a cursory plan, being able to transact for what you lack, and being able to see and articulate a pathway to the achievement of an aim. This also presupposes that you know what your aims are. If you have no aims, of course, you can't see a pathway to them. So optimism is like the inventor's superpower. However, like any superpower, it can be used constructively or can be driven by some weaknesses that dilute that superpower. If it's not just wishful thinking, then how do we develop optimism? So optimism must be based on accurate thinking. It's the result of planning and fuel strategy. There are probably a few of you out there that might not get the significance of this, but in Mechanics and Practice 2, PSTI, we do a deep dive into planning, strategy, tactics, and implementation. Planning and strategy is where the inventor lives. The point is inventors are very good at operating out in the future. Not only do inventors need certainty, but we create certainty when speaking about the future. We speak about the future as if it's happening now. For instance, when I was talking to Kristen about our future after the fire, I laid out a cursory plan of real estate investment. And it was, It wasn't like I just made it up on the spot. I had been studying and dabbling with real estate investment for a couple of years. And when I saw the opportunity, the real estate market in 2012, and knew what kind of resources we had in the way of insurance money that was going to be coming our way. It was a no brainer for me. It was just a foregone conclusion. So when we identify and communicate a pathway to some future, It is with some certainty, and that is the brand of optimism that I'm talking about here.
7: My name's David Summer. In this crazy world, I do genuinely wish that you were all here with us in Perth for this mid-year conference. Thanks for your introduction to Inventors, Gary. And yes, I certainly identify as an inventor, inventor, inventor. The topic of my conversation today is a seed of optimism. Context of finding optimism to regroup, reinvent, redefine and recover from breakdowns. Gary has described inventors are visionaries and optimistic, always looking forward and in positive times inventors have superpowers. However, when things go wrong and the inventor's nemesis, uncertainty occurs, And breakdowns occur when adversity strikes, ventures become vulnerable and can react very negatively, often angry and aggressive, or withdraw and sulk. I'm capable of both. I've had some fantastic business successes and made millions. And I've had dramatic failures and I've lost millions. So I'm well qualified to discuss the impacts of breakdowns, twice-faced major wipeouts. I want to share my experience today and to explore the negative reactions that I faced for finding the resolution to recover, turn around that biology, that linguistic and transactional behaviour that is required to bounce back. Inventors, we love them or we hate them. I started my career as an accountant, but as we in Influence Ecology know, inventors do not make good accountants. Judges and producers of great accounts. I was clearly a suppressed inventor as an accountant for 10 years. It was only a matter of time before I broke out and took the next step as a management consultant, working with and taking equity stakes in businesses. Throughout that 30-year journey, I've been a founder, shareholder, or manager in over 30 businesses across 14 industries, including agriculture, mining construction, real estate, property development. Inventors hate them hear the judges and producers saying, yep, 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 charge, full steam ahead like a bull in a china shop, head in the clouds and not feet on the ground and always looking towards the future and can see that success awaiting. Not with any ill intent but because inventors are always looking forward. With less than appropriate, or some would say no, regard for the implications that may occur if that vision doesn't work. My experience, scars to prove it, is that business is tough. It's hard to succeed in business, and my track board is probably one third, one third, one third. That is, one third succeed, one third mediocre, and one third fail. My view's been to spread the risk. Uh, Contrary to Peter Thiel, who we study in Zero to One, who says only back one, pick one, back one and make it a winner. It's only recently that I've understood the principles of focus. Unfortunately, the fallout from failed businesses can be disastrous. If We overlay different economic cycles, worldwide events such as COVID that simply cannot be planned for or managed, we have a recipe for disaster. Inventors love them and hate them, just ask my wife, planners, ran, all of my friends who had supported and endorsed the fund understandably deserted. Total financial meltdown. All my money and my shareholders money gone. So how does failure unfold? For me there were three reactions, anger,
8: rejection realisation. First reaction, anger and blame. Our biology
7: reacts differently, certainly with different personality types. However, generally it reacts in one of two ways. One is deflation, the negative depressed feeling that you have. Alternatively, it's the victimization reaction, the feeling of helplessness. I was right. Everyone else was wrong. It was not my fault. Second reaction is the rejection of that anger the fight or flight stress reaction and you either want to run away or fight it you just don't want this to happen as it is now do you choose to dig in and fight your way through it or run third reaction is that gut wrenching realization when you know that life as you know it has been destroyed mental stress and anguish that just smashes you in the face So, what is the impact of failure? How do we consider the actions and reactions which happen in respect to our conditions of life? We're looking at the influence ecology, copyright respected chart of conditions of life. At each of the biological, linguistic, and transactional conditions of life, largely describe the impacts on my biological conditions of life. Health for me that rolled into depression. Which led to a substantial increase in alcohol dependency and a physical health decline. Work was spiraling out of control in total overload. Knowing at this point, all you know is that you are totally unable to back your own judgment. These biological reactions are extreme. Of course, um, rolls into your linguistic conditions of life. Relationships. My relationship with my wife became terrible. My relationship with my employees, my relationship with my friends, particularly those who'd backed me and supported me and endorsed the product, they were all in the toilet. Career, I believed that I had destroyed my career and I felt as a failure as a father. Money, the money was gone, and my narrative basically saying, How can I ever recover? I've lost it all. Sociality. I really did not want to see anyone. I just didn't want to. Shame factor was too high. Ethics, well, they went out the window because at that point in time, I would have done anything to turn the situation around. And education, well, that's interesting because it probably was a good education, but you wouldn't have thought it at the time. Transactional conditions of life, fitness, aesthetics, environment, politics, legacy, and and spirituality, the upper echelons of Maslow's hierarchy, They've
8: gone, and they're not at all a priority at that time. So how do we turn this reaction around when you're feeling
7: like you want to be curled up on the floor in the fetal position? Words of the Australian rock and the angels came to mind. I don't want to face the
8: day, the day, the day, today. When you don't want to go to work. When you don't want to
7: face your employees who don't know if they're going to have a job. When you don't want to take a phone call from your bank manager. What enables us to turn our thought process around and manage our biology? What point do we reach the bottom that enables us to turn around our biology and take a positive action, a positive step forward? I don't know what triggered my thought process when I said to myself, I need to be mentally tough." this. I have the strength to see this through and I have strong relationships around me. We can fight our way through this. So how do we regroup, reinvent, redefine and recover? Capacity to recover from stress reactions is called psychological resilience. Practice, where do we get that? Glenn Mandurian, in a Harvard Business Review, describes that those who have survived a traumatic life-altering event often convey that they wouldn't have it any other way. I'm not so sure. I totally agree, but I take the point. If you look at the summary of his interpretation, which is consistent with my experience, and then overlay influence psychology terms. First principle is accurate thinking. Recognise that failure is one of life's more common traumas. Remembering there is no success without failure. Take the time to heal emotionally and create a positive mindset. I can do this. I can do this again. Second principle, planning. Realise what you're made of, an inventory of resources. Choose to go forward. Seek perspective and inspiration. Recreate your identity and raise the bar. And then the strategy, rebounding. Start with figuring out why you lost. Identify new paths. Inventors, reinvent. Create your strategy and seize the right opportunity.
0: For those of you that don't know me, uh, I started studying with Influence College about four and a half years ago. Uh, And some of these key bridges that I've crossed in my life in the last four and a half years have been much easier to deal with. They haven't been easy. But because of influence ecology, they also were not nearly as difficult as they could have otherwise been. And so first, I've just got to say it's taken me uh, 22 years ish of studying things like we study in influence ecology to figure out what I figured out now and I'm just super excited about what the next 20 years of studying with influence ecology might do or allow us to have so uh, with that uh, let's jump in to this conversation about inventors and I'm going to have to use some of what we just learned around the idea of superpowers in illustrating this you see to an inventor we see past a lot of the difficulties that confront everybody else. You see, I look at this picture and to other personality types, it may look like an amazingly dangerous storm. Concerns about wind, how high are the swells, how much rain is coming down. And the inventor is already dealing with the sunlight on the other side already thinking about whether or not they have sunscreen and how fast their boat can go in open water. Now, they'll deal with the facts of the situation of this storm, set it all aside and be able to take appropriate action based upon those facts. But we live on the other end of this. And that takes us to the first of these stages in building certainty. And that is finding out what is so. Now, the thing is that when you're trying to find out what is so, you may not even be able to determine what is so right now without help. And let me give you an example. Somebody might be trying to lose weight. So what they do is they focus only on caloric consumption. been their experience, that's something that's in the current. And they say to themselves, I'll just track my calories and then I'll follow the recommended amount of calorie deficit and that's it. Now I'm no nutritionist, but maybe that's not it. Maybe if you consulted a nutritionist, you would find that it really matters what the composition of those calories are. Are we getting the appropriate amount of carbs at the right time of day in fats and proteins? You might find out that it's not only how much of those macronutrients you consume, it might also be when you consume them. And you could find that you're not even looking in the right place. You know, you guys may have heard this story of Kirkland and his cousin Cletus. Cletus was known to be a pretty big drinker. And one night, Kirkland's heading home, and he sees Cletus out on this dark street under a street lamp, looking for his keys. And Kirkland pulls over, knowing Cletus has probably had a few drinks. And he says, Cletus, what in the world are you doing out here? And Cletus is down on his hands and knees, looking around, looking in the gutter and under cars. He says, I'm looking for my car keys. He says, you are in no shape to be driving. Let me help you find your car keys and then I'm going to drive you home. And Cletus says, okay. He says, first, do you know where you dropped them? He says, yep, about 150 feet that way. Cletus says, what the heck are you doing? Looking here. He says, well, this is where the good light is. You see, we oftentimes only look for what is so. Or as Susan Scott would have talked about in her book, Fierce Conversations, interrogate reality long enough to know what is so. Now, the same thing when you think about your aims. What is so in your finances, you might relate to as, oh, I just need to look at my budget and how much money I can save. Or I just need to know how much money is required. And then, uh, Something might happen that will make it occur. See, it might not be just your budget and how much money you're saving. It might be tremendous inefficiency in the assets and tools you have now. And that could all be because we haven't had help even determining where we should be looking for those facts. And it might not be under the obvious street lamp.
8: In the 70s, it was the oil shocks. Then, of course, in the 80s, it was the Wall Street crash. The 90s, well, that was just a decade of economic and political crises. But it also heralded the birth of the internet and the digital age. Consider the impact on Kodak or the disruption the iPod caused. The early 90s, we we had 9-11 and that's impacted everybody far and wide and later that decade was the GFC the global financial crisis now this was personal because at the time I was building 40 townhouses I'd sold 36 of them so I didn't think the GFC would impact me where was I wrong I ended up with a 25% default rate on settlement. That means a quarter of the people who had bought and paid their deposit couldn't get finance to settle. And I owed the bank around about $12 million. That was certainly uncertain times. However, I knew my aims and what had to be done, so I got into action. The bank was paid, but financially, I was wiped out. A couple of years later in the teens, and again impacting me directly, we had the devastating earthquake sequence in Christchurch. Overnight, our lives were literally disrupted. I was just starting to climb out of the hole that was the GFC when our environment changed again. It wasn't just the physical environment, although the central city was literally flattened. There's something like 1,500 buildings in the central city were demolished. The earthquakes had a dramatic effect on business and social environments. So at age 57, I was literally starting from scratch. For those interested in more, you can check out my podcast. Then I knew my aims. I took stock of the resources around me and set to work to rebuild my ecologies. And of course, today it's COVID 19. And this time the impact is not so much on me. Why? Because I've built robust ecologies around me. In fact, work wise, I haven't been busier. My point, however, there are always uncertain times. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world today. My name's John Bajent and I'm based in Christchurch, New Zealand. If you don't know it already, I identify as an inventor personality. I've completed the Influence Ecology curriculum, and currently I'm doing PIP and TCX. I'm also a member of faculty. Outside of Influence Ecology, I'm an entrepreneur with investments in software, IT servicing, property development, and trade-based businesses. And I'm also a specialist business consultant in the area of margin erosion. I get to use my superpowers and help ambitious business owners to unravel the complexity that's typically costing them 20 to 50% of their margin. See, it's how people transact that cause all that complexity. Today's topic is certainty in uncertain times. Said another way, how does an inventor provide certainty when all around is chaos? So let's unpack certainty in uncertain times a little. What causes uncertainty for you? Is it things that are not going as expected, maybe thwarted aspirations, or is it a sense of unease, something you can't quite put your finger on? Perhaps a change in the environment. Remember, living is a process of overcoming obstacles when we fall out of step with the environment. Or is it not knowing how to deal with it? We're in a constant dance with the environment. So to do well, we've got to adapt. We've got to learn how to deal with and solve the problems that continually confront us. Those who study and practice in preparation for that dance, they do well. Those that don't struggle. How we act in the moment of breakdown depends on our knowledge, our belief, our understanding, our mood, much, much more. This process of thinking that has us react, respond, and take actions. Now, for an inventor, the big cause of uncertainty is not knowing. More specifically, being found out. That we don't know. You'll often see us hold back from taking or talking until we're sure about what it is we're going to say. That's why, for an inventor, certainty is our dominant need for happiness. Practiced at finding it, we're curious, we're always thinking, constantly playing what if scenarios in our head. What does finding certainty look like? Knowing your aims, if you don't know where you're going or where you're starting from, you're just going to be aimless. Accurate thinking. Thinking accurately requires a kind of character and rigor that is uncommon. There's two fundamentals, as you probably already know. We've got to separate facts from mere information, and we've got to categorize those facts into important and unimportant. And a framework for thinking accurately is the pattern of inquiry. It's not easy, but mastering the pattern of inquiry is a key to thinking accurately. We also have to know how to achieve our aims. You know, we live in complex and changing times. Thinking accurately takes energy. So we're typically, we go with the flow, the least path of resistance some people call it the current however we achieve our aims through commitments knowing what to commit to and what not to commit to commitments are objective they are grounded so once we've done the thinking it's about translating those ideas into clear objective commitments and actions that we're going to take and to support our actions we need to know how to build an environment that supports our aims. You have superpowers, can't do it alone. Accurate knowledge is hard to obtain and even harder without the access to those with the specialized knowledge. So put yourself in the company of others who are willing to cooperate with you. An environment of people whose habits and practices align with the actions you must take to satisfy your aims takes deliberate practice good intentions won't cut it results must be produced and reproduced effectively over a long period of time to create the real and meaningful surplus and satisfaction you've got to find and build an influence ecology
1: special thanks to all of the subject matter experts who spoke at the recent mid-year conference. It was enlightening to hear from some of the best and brightest minds in our ecology. And in our show notes, you'll find links to connect with all the speakers mentioned in this podcast. The Influence Ecology podcast is produced by Influence Ecology LLC in Ventura, California. This episode was produced by Tyson Crandall and me, John Patterson. You can find a transcript for this and other episodes at InfluenceEcology.com. This episode is made possible through the assistance of the Influence Ecology faculty, staff, mentors, and students around the world. Co-founder Kirk and Tibbles and our colleagues comprise an international collective of professionals who are active in the development of the philosophy of transactionalism and the discipline of transactional competence. Kirkland is considered a leading philosopher and authority in the field and has authored more than 500 papers on the subject, study, and discipline. The podcast theme is by Chris Standring and titled Fast Train to Everywhere. You can subscribe to the Influence Ecology podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or via email at podcast at If you haven't yet offered a rating or review, I ask that you take a moment, go to iTunes or your podcast app, and let us know what you think. This helps us more than you know.